For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation about building a successful life on the strength and purpose of words with author and NPR commentator Kwame Alexander. Charles J. Babbitt's new book shares his love for this state's avian population. And two local experts discuss the recent science that reveals we may be experiencing a worldwide insect apocalypse. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. What would you say if someone told you that poetry was the fastest and most surefire way to get a kid who doesn't like to read hooked on books? And not just any style, but free verse. It sounds like a surprising proposition, but after a few minutes with one of Kwame Alexander's 28 award-winning books, I think you might get his message. Alexander loves words, their sounds, and their meanings. He paints with them like colors and he never wastes a drop. His storytelling is lean and concise, and although there is room for the reader's imagination to fill in some space, he never withholds an emotion or goes against the grain of being sincere. Kwame Alexander writes the way that many young people live, and his popularity speaks volumes about his power to make connections. Testing one, two, three, I live in Herndon, Virginia, and I've been living here for about 10 years. This is the old what-do-you-know question. If I came to Herndon, what would you want to show me? I'd want to show you my writing studio where I'm sitting right now, which is based on my five years at Panera Bread, where I wrote (laughs) my 15th and 16th novel and then decided I would rather be home. So I created a mini Panera Bread in my home. (laughs) And that's where I am right now. What were the important elements in creating a believable facsimile of Panera? Comfortable seating. I didn't put it in a fireplace, but I got heated floors. Wow. Uh, artwork, music piped in, and sunlight. I don't drink coffee, but I do have tea. Hmm, that's very interesting. I just saw a uh, part of an interview where you talked about writing in public rather than at home. And oh, at that yeah. time, you said it was because when you were home, your little girl would want to dress you up. <laughs> it's so true. And the thing about being in my writing studio is my writing friends come over. So I still get the people, which is what I like. The people, the music, the sunlight, I'm surrounded by books, which I wasn't at Panera, but I was surrounded by uh, pastries, which was even better. <laughs> yeah. not necessarily as good for me. Right, right. Do you have a moment that you can look back on and share with us when you think that you first confessed your love affair with words? Three years old, attending daycare on the Upper West Side, and... I had been immersed in literature because my parents were in grad school at Columbia studying literature. So it was all about books. And in particular, it was about Dr. Seuss, Fox and Socks, which is my favorite book to be read to and my favorite book to read. Fox and Socks, Socks and Box, Fox and Socks. I mean, it's just it's repetitive, it's rhythmic, it's rhyme. And so at the end of one particular school day, this kid in my class knocks over this house I had built out of blocks. And my response to him was, hey, man, those were my blocks that you flipped, lest you want a quick payback 
better fix my quick block stack. <laughs> At which point the kids started crying. And my mother recounts the story, and she tells me when she came to school, the teacher said, we have a problem with your son, Mrs. Alexander. He's arrogant. He intimidates the other kids with his words. My mother said, thank you. We teach him to use his words. Like, my love affair with words and books started before I could even understand that I had a love affair with books and words because I like to tell people all the time, if you can mold and shape and create a writer, I think my parents did that. I don't think I found poetry. It found me. And you're returning the favor. The number of times that you've interacted with young people, encouraged them to write, maybe create their first poem, string together their first few words, it's magic. It's not coming out of their mouth. It's coming out of their heart. What, what do you think about that? You know, I thank you for your assessment of it. Um, that's humbling. I don't necessarily think of it as magic. I think of it as a matter of fact, because this is just how I grew up. And I'm trying to sort of impart that, um, that experience, that knowledge that I've been acquiring over the years in my interactions with young people, whether it be on the page or the stage. I've always viewed this notion that kids don't like poetry or kids are reluctant readers as sort of faulty. It, it just doesn't add up. Kids love poetry. They would love to read, but you got to find the poem, the book that's going to engage them. And that requires you to know the kid. We've forgotten that we actually have this passion and this relationship with this ancient language that really taught us how to speak and learn and listen and, and read and write from an early age when we were hearing lullabies from our mom. These are the ways we learn. And so something happened later in life, maybe fifth grade, maybe seventh grade, where that type of communication, that type of language became staid, incomprehensible, boring. So I want to bring us back to that time of our lives where the words were cool. And so that's my goal, to make words cool again. Tell our listeners about Versify and what the mission is. Oh, wait, is this interview happening? Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> I love we're rolling. it. You're doing great. Exceptional. You're good. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's all you. <laughs> I'm sorry. So uh, Versify, I owned a book publishing company back in the 90s. I ran it for 10 years. I published hundreds of authors. It was a small press. I made no money. And it was a passion project. And eventually I had to shut it down because it just wasn't making enough money to justify it. And I always said, when I closed my company down in 2005, if I ever had the opportunity to publish other authors, I'd do it. And so fast forward uh, 10 years, and I'd won this you know, prestigious Newbery Medal for the crossover. And kids were just wanting, what more do you have, Mr. Alexander? We want more books. We need more novels and verse. <laughs> and so I can only write but so fast. And so the idea occurred to me, it'd be great to be able to find opportunities for, us, for writers to, to, to be able to publish their work, works that engage young people, works that were, were smart, works that were page turners, works that ultimately would help kids imagine a better world. And so Versify is um, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt that, um, it's continuing my mission to sort of uh, change the world one word at a time. And so we're publishing four to seven books a year. Uh, we're publishing middle, middle grade novels, picture books, young adult novels, nonfiction. And the only criteria is that the books be good, that they matter, and that they're riveting. 
And so the first four books released on April the 2nd, and uh, and I'm really excited about that. Well, you have built a powerful and successful life out of well-chosen words, and I think that is highly admirable. Um, let's have fun for a second. You know, the word trigger gets thrown around a lot, but there are words that some people just don't like. It's usually their sound rather than their meaning. Is there a word that you can think of that you just don't like? I don't like no. You know, I, I frown on it. I do not like being told no, and I will figure out a way around the no. I, I, I've always felt like no is just it's just a, a roadblock to the yes. Like, it's a, it's a temporary roadblock. My task has always been how to get to that yes. In 2015, I visited about 250 schools. I was on airplanes every day going to schools, talking about the power of books, reading poetry, interacting with students, and, and having a blast, creating these sort of literary pep rallies for students all around the country. And I remember thinking, man, I can't keep this up but too much longer because it's just it's wearing on me. And so I remember having a meeting with my publisher and saying, I need a tour bus. I don't want to be going through security and on different airplanes all the time. Uh, let's get a tour bus and I can travel the country. And I got laughed out of the room. Like, yeah, who do you think you are, Lenny Kravitz? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay. After the next tour, I came back and I said, guys, we just did 170 schools this year. I need a tour bus. We're going to be able to hit more places. I sort of made the case for it. And they said, well, it's an interesting possibility. Come back to us. You know, we'll talk about it again. I came back and I got the tour bus. And it wasn't that I wanted to look like a rock star. It was that it was more practical and functional to be able to travel around the country and not kill myself and still be able to reach these students and be able to offer my vision for what, you know, books can be. And it was an incredible experience, 30 cities in 30 days. And so... Yeah, no was a huge part of that experience. But again, in the end, it was a yes. And so I like to think no's, they're my least favorite word. Yeah. Well, have a safe, safe trip. You're not bringing the bus, are you? No bus. The bus uh, is with the Grateful Dead right now. <laughs> so we'll get the bus on April 1st. <laughs> you, you might want to roll the windows down when you get Yeah, back. we're going to have to do some cleaning, but right. it's all good. Kwame Alexander, author, poet, regular NPR commentator, and host of the podcast Bookish, talked with me from his home in Virginia. He'll be one of hundreds of authors in attendance at the Tucson Festival of Books this Saturday and Sunday on the U of A campus. You can get a complete schedule and tips for making the most of the event at tucsonfestivalofbooks.org. A member of one of this state's best-known families visits Tucson next week to talk about a subject that's dear to his heart. Charles J. Babbitt is a longtime supporter of the environment, and he recently completed his first book, which focuses on a top natural resource that can be found in abundance all around us. It's called Birding, Arizona. What to know, where to go. Here's Tony Paniagua with the interview. Charles Babbitt retired after working as an attorney for 40 years, he focused on personal injury law and criminal defense, yet he still found time to volunteer with the Maricopa Audubon Society in Phoenix during his hectic career. Well, it wasn't a full-time job. The Maricopa Audubon Society has about 2,000 members. It's an all-volunteer organization. I had been on their board of directors for a number of years. 
uh, I was very interested not only in bird watching but in but in uh, environmental issues and uh, uh, they asked me if I would uh, uh, be president and I served, I said yes and I served for president uh, for about eight years but it was obviously uh, a lot of work uh, doing that it, it demanded a you know a lot of time uh, plus uh, you know <laughs> being a practicing lawyer it took uh, it was time consuming. And while some people might be surprised to hear about a busy trial lawyer birding around the state, Babbitt says it's really not that rare. You will find among birders uh, there are an awful lot of doctors, uh, a lot of lawyers, a lot of professional people. You find uh, people basically from all walks of life uh, in birding. I was always fascinated by birds, looking at birds, uh, listening to birds, uh, some of my earliest childhood memories were uh, feeding birds in the snow in Flagstaff when I was a child growing up. But I didn't really become a bird watcher in the formal sense, that is, going out systematically looking for them, systematically recording them, until I happened uh, to be practicing law in Tucson, and a fellow lawyer uh, named Alan Minker, uh, who was a bird watcher, got me interested and invited me to go with him up to Mount Lemmon one day to look at birds. So we went up there, and one of the most beautiful and memorable birds I saw was a woodpecker called Williamson Sapsucker. I just marveled at how beautiful it was. I had never seen one, although they are around Flagstaff where I grew up. And from that time on, uh, Tony, I was hooked. And, and it was, once I got on that train, I never got off. Babbitt fell in love with birding in the 1970s, but why write a book now? Tony, I had uh, done quite a bit of writing. I, I had done a lot of writing about environmental issues. I, you know, when I was president of the Maricopa Audubon Society, I wrote a regular column. I wrote a lot of op-ed pieces for the Star down there, for the Republic, about environmental issues. And then I started writing articles about birding for National Bird Watching Magazine. So, so I had done quite a bit of uh, writing, uh, and when I retired, I decided, well, let's take a stab at writing a book. So I did, and I, and I hope uh, the readers who will be reading it here in the coming months uh, will, will feel the same way. Babbitt's six chapters include birding seasons, hints for identifying various species and exploring his favorite birding locations. One of them is here in southern Arizona, the San Rafael Valley grassland southeast of Tucson. It is one of the most interesting grassland areas in the state. In fact, very few, if any, places in the state have such a large expanse of intact grasslands as the San Rafael Valley. And as a consequence, the San Rafael Valley has a whole suite of unique grassland bird species which attract birders from around the country, particularly in the wintertime. Charles Babbitt is the brother of Bruce Babbitt, former governor of Arizona, presidential candidate in 1988, and secretary of the interior under President Bill Clinton. Charles says the environment has always been important to the family. He hopes you go outside and enjoy the many options in our state. From the standpoint of scenery, from the standpoint of wildlife, from the standpoint of birds and, and reptiles, 
And I encourage people to go out and learn these things because they're fascinating in in and of themselves. But you learn a lot by getting out and 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 trying to understand nature. It's what it's what we're all about. It's a lot of our science and what we've what we've learned through science is based upon our observation of what's going on in nature. We were brought up by a father who was very interested in uh, nature and the out of doors. And so I think it kind of stuck with all of us in one way or the other. And with me, it was in particular, it was birds. It is truly a passion. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Charles J. Babbitt will host a reading and book signing on Saturday, March 9th, beginning at 11 a.m. at Wild Birds Unlimited on East Tankerverde Road in Tucson. New York Times writer Brooke Jarvis published an article called The Insect Apocalypse is Here and asked the question, what does it mean for the rest of life on Earth? Though surprising to many people, the article highlighted an urgent issue that's been known to scientists for decades. The global biomass of insects is diminishing, in some regions by as much as 2.5% every year. And this loss is especially hitting the insects who pollinate. To better understand the effect this decline is having on the environment and our food supply, I asked Kieran Suckling, the executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity, and Justin O. Schmidt, an entomologist and author at the University of Arizona, to join me in the studio. Most of the science is pretty good. Now, some of the reporters will over-exaggerate a little bit, but basically they're right on that there's a huge problem in the diversity and the quantity of them. You know, species may not go extinct, but if you lose 90% of the population, that's a problem. Kieran, I want to hear your reaction when you uh, read that. Yeah, I mean, I was very glad to see the studies come out and get such um, a great public uh, presentation discussion because for those of us on the inside, you know, we know insects uh, have been declining for many, many years, but there tends to be a real focus on the charismatic vertebrates, the bighorn sheep, the whales, the grizzly bears. But the fact of the matter is it's the insects and these little creatures that really make ecosystems function. And so it was great to see some discussion of that, and hopefully that now will translate to improved policy actions to help them. Because on the policy side, the big vertebrate, charismatic animals, salmon, etc., they still get all the funding. Uh, invertebrates are left out, and very few invertebrates are listed as endangered, um, even though they're more imperiled than than the vertebrates. And um, last couple years of concern about the monarch has helped get people interested in insects, and hopefully will open a way toward a, a deeper ecological approach to to conservation. Yeah, a lot of people may not even be aware that invertebrates uh, are protected by some endangered species um, classifications. Uh, Justin, what's your observation about that? Do you think that there are any effective policies put in place to protect these endangered arthropods? Short answer is pretty much no. There, there theoretically can be. There are a few tiger beetles, a couple of big ones, one from Kansas is listed in a few butterflies, against the charismatic ones, and which is good. You know, we need to get some kind of attention. But, for example, I worked on a little velvety, a little fuzzy ant-like creature that lived in one little habitat in the highlands of Florida. 
that habitat was about to be sold into becoming a, an orange grove, which would have exterminated a whole species. But something like that has not been listed, and there's many, many more examples of that where I think it would really be beneficial to realize that these creatures are really important. Without the invertebrates, especially the insects, then we're not going to have very many vertebrates either, and so it's a cascading effect. And the, the more you protect the, the base of a, of a pyramid, the more the top will stay intact. But if you let the base erode, well, you can kind of guess and see what's happening. And that's what we're addressing now is finally the, the base is uh, getting some attention long overdue. I remember when I was a small kid, they taught the food chain. And later that became the food web as they realized that chain wasn't really an accurate description of how uh, interlinked everything is. What are the first things that people are going to notice if this trend continues unabated? Songbirds are in decline all over the world. Um, and we know of those that are uh, in decline, the ones doing the worst are the gills that feed on insects. And so we're seeing... Uh, their food source is disappearing, so they're declining. But also, their food source, these insects, are covered in pesticides, and so the birds are getting poisoned through that. So the decline of songbirds is very closely linked to these insect declines. Um, and might be something that's easier for people to notice than to understand the difference between this year's population of insects that they're not visually seeing or hearing like they are the songbirds. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're also seeing uh, pretty major soil impacts. There's a endangered beetle called the American burring beetle. It used to occur in the billions from Montana all the way to Florida. And those billions would dig up these very large holes to bury their carrion and they would bury uh, small mammals and small birds and so this was a massive soil aeration rejuvenation service they were providing that species uh, is now so endangered it only occurs on a small population off the coast of massachusetts and small population in ohio and oklahoma so we've lost this tremendously valuable uh, soil rejuvenation to it, which leads to erosion, decline of farmlands, etc. So it's, it's enormous. As I sometimes like to say, if grizzly bears went extinct tomorrow, ecologically, you'd barely notice. If all the ants went extinct tomorrow, humans would be extinct within a decade. You think about birds. We all love birds. What about lizards? Lizards eat insects. Birds, roadrunners are one of our famous birds, eats lizards. Lizards are also eaten by rattlesnakes and other snakes, then in turn eat rodents that are overrunning us. And so you can see it's just this mesh network of negative effects when you affect the population of insects. And of course, also that would mean that the plants are no longer being controlled because insects control a lot of plants. So it all kind of ties up with the environmental affronteries that they have. They have, like Kieran said, there's pesticides on one side, herbicides, which are probably even worse than insecticides in some regards because they kill a lot of plants. And then the habitat loss, you combine all of these and pretty soon you're getting a real catastrophic situation, which is what we're seeing. And it's not just in the places where you know you think 
wow, you know, we lost this land. After all, we got this great preserve. We got this wilderness area. Wrong. A lot of the studies have been showing that the wilderness areas are going way, way down as well. And actually here in Tucson, to bring it back to locally, I moved just off Silver Bell Road back in the early 80s. And I used to set up a black light. That's an ultraviolet light that we use for attracting insects. And I was getting all kinds of really weird, fun things. Just, just a joy to see a mantispid, which is a, a little fly that looks like a praying mantis with little legs in it. Its babies eat the egg sacs of black widow spiders, among other things. So you can see it gets really complicated. They put in a little strip mall there right along the Santa Cruz River. 90% of that disappeared. The habitat affects anything from great wildlife reserves to local backyard you know, bug watching. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, joy in there because we tend to think about the effects of extinction in terms of... Um, ecological effects, maybe uh, medical effects for research. But there's a huge psychological, emotional effect on humans. I mean, the three of us are old enough to remember growing up chasing fireflies and butterflies. I mean, they're one of the most prevalent ways a child can interact with animals in abundance. And that roots you as a child to the earth. It bonds you to these species. And that's an experience which is largely no longer available. And we are fundamentally different beings growing up. And we lose that connectivity. Because it turns out you don't get to play with a grizzly bear or a whale. <laughs> you right? don't, you, don't you can play to. with fireflies. <laughs> I was just in Mexico last week visiting the wintering congregation of uh, monarchs up there. It was, it was unbelievable. 225 million monarchs flying around. It was like being in a river of monarchs. Um, and that's down from what it used to be. They used to be in the billions. And even our experience, which isn't available anymore, go back a generation, go back two generations, and people were seeing these animals in spectacular abundance. And I think that's a birthright, and that's a psychological need for humans, and we're damaging ourselves by taking that away. My guests were Kiran Suckling, the executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity, and U of A entomologist Justin O. Schmidt, the author of The Sting of the Wild. We'll feature more of this conversation next week on this show, examining how wildfires and natural disasters impact insect populations. And my guests will offer some observations about how humans might help mitigate the damage caused by urban development and habitat loss. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.